Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. Welcome back to AI and the Future of Work. Thanks again for making this one of the most downloaded podcasts about the future of work. If you enjoy what we do, please like, comment, and share in your favorite podcast app. And we'll keep sharing great conversations like the one we have for today. As always, I'm your host, Dan Turchin, CEO of PeopleRain, the AI platform for IT and HR employee service. I'm also an investor in and advisor to more than 30 AI-first startups. And as you know, a firm believer in the power of technology to make humans better. If you're passionate about changing the world with AI, or maybe just looking for your next adventure, let's talk. Now, we learn from AI thought leaders weekly on this show. And of course, as an added bonus, you get one AI fun fact each week. Today's fun fact, we talk a lot about the ethics of AI and the importance of asking this question when using AI to make automated decisions that affect people's lives. What could go wrong? How many times have you heard me ask that question to our guests? In other words, what might be the adverse impact of a bad automated decision? No place in modern society is that question more important than on Twitter. Today's equivalent of, uh, we'll call it a town square, where anyone can say just about anything about anyone with little fear of retribution and almost complete anonymity. New Twitter owner Elon Musk apparently disagrees. One of his first leadership acts was to fire the entire ethical AI team, also known as Meta, or Machine Learning Ethics, Transparency, and Accountability. It seems algorithmic transparency is no longer a priority at Twitter. In the past, Twitter has been a shiny example among social media platforms of how to use AI responsibly for content moderation. As you evaluate your own continued use of Twitter as a platform, just beware that starting now, the students may be left to grade their own homework. And as always, we'll, uh, we'll link to the full article in today's show notes. But now shifting to this week's conversation, we've had great conversations in the past about the future of work with visionaries like Charlene Lee, Gary Bowles, and Dr. Mark von Riesmanam, a digital speaker. Each one has shared a unique perspective on how technology is making it easier to collapse geographical boundaries. They've also provided practical advice for leaders about how to make teams productive without the benefits of shared physical space, hallway conversations, and even kind of ad hoc social activities. Now, today's guest has been thinking about these themes since 2016. Six years ago, the future of work was dramatically different. Reading Kevin's book, The Future Workplace Experience, makes him seem like a clairvoyant who predicted the future. In addition to being a successful author, Kevin Mulcahy's a sought-after speaker on all topics related to the future of work and workplace trends. He's vice president at Future Workplace and has lectured in the past on entrepreneurship at Babson College. Without further ado, Kevin. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Let's get started by uh, having you share a little bit more about your background and how you got into this space. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Dan. Thank you for having me on the air with you. And yes, how we get into the space, we often get into the space through serendipity. You can have the algorithms program what you want, but what humans do is add serendipity. And I was at a conference uh, way back and was sitting beside a, a, a woman who had written a book on trends in the workplace way back when 
social media was an evolving new trend and she envisioned when employees would would have social media accounts and employers would wonder how to police employees social media accounts and as, as you talked about Elon Musk today I think back to wow what about the CEO policing so uh, the employees on social media and this is a fantastic example that we just see today parody 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 or not and uh, so from that discussion, uh, I had been a researcher in trends that were reshaping um, technology and competitive behavior. And part of getting at a trend is the idea of not just reading what other people have to say and being informed on the reports, but going out and doing primary interviews and targeting um, leading edge practitioners and asking them essentially two questions. What are you doing differently this year and, and why? And when you understand the answers to those two questions, the, the why is what organizations respond to. There's some trend, some impetus, some action from a competitor or some change in the environment, or there's something going on that people feel that they have to respond to. And the what they do are the practices that they implement as part of their interpretation of how they should respond to be successful. And I think that's part of why we're here today is AI is a trend. So what are people doing and why? Kevin, you wrote the book in 2016, and gosh, a few things have changed since then. What is the future of work today, and how is it different from what the future of work was in 2016? Well, I think we have to be careful on um, defining futurists versus, I would say, trendists or near futurists. And um, what I practice is the practice of extrapolation of today's trends. A, a new trend our new practice doesn't just show up magically and is adopted by 50% or more of the population. You have to pay attention to what is that shift in practices? What behavioral change have companies started implementing that as more and more people follow those behaviors, that practice by a few pioneers becomes a trend? So the, the trends are often divined from paying close attention to what have you done differently and why? And, and uh, versus the opposite of being a futurist is here's my prognosis or my prediction on a future at a fixed point in time. And while those are interesting narratives that can challenge us on the possibilities of a convergence of a set of trends, they're only one possible outcome and therefore dangerous for companies to start hanging their hats on. Better instead to start understanding the underlying assumptions that HR organizations are building their strategies upon and what recent shifts or changes in assumptions have they made. And, and that was the essence of the book, was to go out and interview leading practitioners on what practices have they changed and why and fund, many of the fundamentals remain. I mean, the, the, the primary um, HR driver was 
to upgrade the experience of employees. I mean, that trend persists. It just manifests differently. And if you can provide employees with a better experience, they'll be more engaged, they'll stick, be more productive, there's more tenure. I mean, the benefits just stack up. Um, this, the second, then, then we started diving into what are the components of a, of a great employee experience. There are technology components, there are learning components, there are leadership components, um, there's recruiting components. And you start peeling, peeling the layers of what drives or creates an experience as an employee. And, and if you if you address, if you try to prioritize what is the experience at this company, not just some glamorous high-tech company over there had implemented, but what would change the experience at working here? And and listen and, and also then believing what the employee says and then acting on what they said. So it, it requires a few hoops. You have to listen, you have to believe, and you have to act. So you interviewed a bunch of fascinating people from the book. Uh, pick one that surprised you or shocked you or some insight that you got from a particular interview and tell us the story. Well, I think the very first one was, uh, and the very first interview was with the vice president of employee experience at Airbnb. And I showed up at uh, Dan at, at his office in San Francisco. And Airbnb, at the time, their, their challenge, uh, their, their employee workforce is, is uh, comprised of a lot of folks back then that were between the ages of 25 to, to 31. And, and what is the experience that needs to be created at the office at that time? And Airbnb was very early on the idea of enhancing practices in the workplace that would shift the experience. So one of the first ones, an amusing one that was startling, it was the first time of actually being in an executive's office, the door pushed open, and this black Labrador that comes bounding in and, and approaches me, pauses, looks at me, and just hops onto my lap. And this was not normal behavior for a person visiting from the East Coast where just pets are like children. They're to be uh, seen and not heard from and certainly not brought to the office. And so I was in this environment where there's just all these pets that are at the office. And I asked, well, this is interesting. What, what is behind that? He says, well, that's the experience. Many of our employees have made significant emotional commitment to their pets and if we want to create an experience for those employees that they feel comfortable working here, we have to create an environment to allow them to bring their pets to work. And the pets have to be incorporated, included, and accommodated. Um, so that's just one practice. Is what, what, what are your employees doing differently and how are you going to respond or anticipate to that one? And then they went on and they eliminated all the individual um, dining uh, areas and, and the individual dining tables and put in long tables because they wanted to convey the sense of community at the office. I don't want to come in, Dan, and meet you and the two of us caucus in a corner and plot and scheme together. And, and it's just, that's not worth coming to the office for. But to build family style, and this, this trend is coming back, 
as we see people coming back to the office, why am I returning to the office? Well, now we see a few companies putting in these, these long family-style cafeteria tables again, uh, where groups of people can gather and eat together as a community. And then at that time, the third unusual trend where, where we're in a world of individual choice, uh, what the company had done was what we, we want to create a collective experience and we're going to have one, a different menu every day, but everybody gets offered the same so we can all have a common dining experience. And, and I think it's, they had paid attention to a number of elements that were important to their particular cohort of employees. And each of these practices, while they may or may not suit the company that you, the listener, is working at, it worked for who they were in the Bay Area at that time and what these employees felt would enhance the experience of coming into the office. And that's that's a trend that has not changed. And, and in fact, that's the struggle that has become more pointed now is how do we make the experience of coming back into the office more worth it? And, and, and another trend in the book was leadership. And, and what are the elements of leadership? And a lot of leadership is about productivity. But now we're seeing a lot of leadership practices being about inclusion, that softer side of leadership. And in this post-COVID environment, that soft leadership. We, we've gone through three years of being on Zoom calls and running through our task lists and have you got this done and by when can it be done and what's the update on that? And what that was, that's, I would call that hard leadership. And soft leadership is more um, akin to, there's three important questions to soft leadership. How are you? And I'll listen. Um, how are we? And I'll listen. And how am I? And I share. And this softer leadership as I'm on Zoom calls with people into their homes versus their offices, and I, you can see if people are tired or if they're the, a, a child in the background or a dog or just there's chaos or there's, there's calmness. You can just get a sense of how people are and meet them where they are. And I think that, that's a big Leadership has always been a trend. I mean, that's the that's the key category for management books. You can't manage if you don't lead. You can't lead if you can't manage. But the how we lead uh, post-pandemic has to be softer. We have to understand where people are and how they come from. And then another element that was a trend that was in the book was on this, the type of work environment that we provide people. And the question there is, where do you do your best work? And again, believe, ask, and believe. And for some people, they may do their best work in noisy cafes. For others, it may indeed be at home in the kitchen table. And for others, they may do need to come into an office that is just set up a little differently and stop with the hoteling already and just give me my own space so that I can leave something there and come back to it the next day and, and don't have to put it away in lockers and uh, to be part of a modern workforce. And workplace. So, so again, it goes back to the employee experience. Is uh, the the practice that remains consistent is how can we make the experience better? The answers will be in the same categories, but the specifics have just evolved, and that's what we have to listen to.
Those are great examples. Here's a challenge. You talked about leadership and how what we do as leaders has changed, certainly over the last three years and certainly in the past six since you published the book. We've all been taught that you can't manage what you can't measure. We talk about this concept, it's kind of amorphous concept of the employee experience, but how do we quantify the quality of the employee experience? We ask. <laughs> uh, you've been, I mean, at this point in all of our emails, and I mean, even my local dentist is, how was your tooth extraction experience with us today on a scale of one to 10, right? The net uh, promoter score has pervaded every part of the consumer experience, and it's beginning to provide, pervade every part of the employee experience. It's this idea of frequent check-ins is replacing um, quarterly surveys or dread the thought, annual reviews. We ask, we ask frequently, we listen, we get um, heat maps on how are you doing today? Um, how, how do you feel our, our leadership is going? Are you learning this month, this week? You, and you just get these uh, you checkpoints, these check-ins, and this constant adoption and adaption of new policies to respond to the temperature check. The, the uh, organizations are an organism. They're ever-changing. They're ever-evolving. They're, they're different on a Friday than they are on a Monday. They're different next Monday than they were last Monday. So just checking, how are we doing today? Where are the pressure points in the organization? And especially with the deployment of apps, and there are a number of actually apps that have now been deployed post-pandemic that basically ask that question. How are you doing today? How are you feeling today? To calibrate employees' mental health and to see that it's not the absolute answer that matters. I mean, Dan, you may be, may be more of an optimist than I am, and every day is just great for you, Dan. But if, it, if you say you're having a not-so-great day, then I've detected a shift in Dan's response against a pattern of Dan's previous responses. So now we see um, AI starting to show up and helping HR leaders capturing a shifts in sentiment of employees and the best managers can detect a change of tone in an office. We, we don't quite know how they do it, but you know it when you see it, you, you can see it when they do it. And what we have now at our fingertips is, is a lot of sentiment detection um, technologies that are available to us that are starting to show up in, in our, uh, on our apps. They're starting to show up in the background of looking at the language that we're using in our emails. And they're showing up, and they should be showing up in the questions that our leaders are are asking of their employees as they go. This constant sentiment detection, and that I think is one of the key um, features. Whether it's technology enabled or person enabled, but it's one of the key features of a constantly evolving and growing employee experience. So let's say as a leader, I'm asking and I'm actively listening. And like you said, I detect a change in the tone or the sentiment based on these pulse surveys. What are some examples of actions that I could take knowing that the sentiment is changing? So I think it's the, the first element is 
uh, the act of asking will actually have the impact of reducing senses of alienation. Nobody understands me. Nobody's listening. So that, that just the fact that you asked, you've already improved the employee experience. And I think that's one of the fallacies here is we're like, oh my goodness, I don't want to ask because if I hear the answer, I have to, then the burden is upon me to do something about it. And I don't have the bandwidth or the budget or the power to do something about it. Go back to step one. Do not pass go. Do not ask. And therefore, I won't fail and I won't let anyone down. Yeah, wrong. Ask. The act of asking creates conversation. Then the act of listening creates trust. You're not just perfunctory asking. If I hear that you've heard me and you repeat back, look, so what I hear you saying is um, there's some elements of how we're running our meetings. It's, this is not a bad experience and could be improved. You don't have to be a solver, but do be empathetic. That's not what soft leadership is. It's not solving. It's I didn't say solve leadership. I said soft leadership. So it's it's listening. Say, well, what what are the challenges that you're facing? And then you can actually ask, well, what should do you think we should do about it? What could I do about it? Is there anything that I need to support you in doing something about it? And again, here you haven't tried to come up with the answer and solve their, their problem. We, are, we have to get out of the, we are heroes wearing capes and we're here to fix all the challenges of our employees. We're not, we are, we are leaders who care and we're here to listen, and we're here to engage with our employees, and we're here to coach our employees on what do you think should be done about it? Like help the employees identify what they should be done. I'm not, we, we, have to, we are not the all-knowing that gains position power by solving it for them. All leadership, I'm going to say pre-pandemic leadership. So that, that's a big element of behaviors that we all need to change. So here we are in the podcast is called AI and the future of work. We've been talking a lot about the future of work. Let's talk about the technology side. I believe that ironically, we can use the power of AI to humanize the employee experience, make employees feel more trusted and valued and respected. In your experience, what are some of the examples or use cases where AI has been used to improve the employee experience? I love the term humanizing the experience. And I think that that is key because before we get to the practices, I want to share with you what we think the fears are. The fears of employees are that algorithms will be infected or that they'll be treated less in, in a less human way. Or um, a lot of times they don't trust the AI because they don't trust HR. So, so based on the trust factor first, and you talked about ethics at the beginning of this program, and, and there has to, a big part of ethics is, is trust and, and, and conforming to the ethic, conforming to the trust. So the first guide on AI and on trust is trying to pick an area that's not controversial. Like, 
examples. Let's not lead with, we're using AI to do everybody's performance review this year, mass anxiety, versus we look at the HR value chain and we can see, well, can we use AI to expand our pool of candidates or help us source candidates from non-traditional sources? Excellent use of AI, very non-threatening. Can we use AI to help onboard our employees? Um, some, some firms I see, um, hotel chains in particular, are using AI and chatbots to help, to help prospects fill out their um, application form. Uh, much easier. I, I don't need you to be the most literate person to take on a front desk role, but I do need you to have interactive skills. So asking your name, having them recorded, using the AI to capture your 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 name, and then asking where you live and asking some other questions and using chat-based, um, I won't say interrogation, but chat-based conversation to extract the information that previously I was having you type in, much easier interface, much more natural, and, and has le is leading to a higher completion rate of application forms. You can't hire who doesn't apply. So if you raise your your um, the number of candidates by making the application easier and using AI to enable that application process in some way, shape, or form, you get broader candidates. And, and then once onboarding, AI then has great um, roles on the onboarding side and providing relevant information to me for the geography I live in, for the salary that I'm on, or the level that I'm at. And when I ask questions, the AI is being used to narrow down this set of answers to what is more likely than not to be relevant to me, given who I am that's asking versus anyone else. And then we're seeing, how do I get promoted around here? And we're seeing AI being used to recommend learning assets that people in my position who've tended to get promoted from my position have tended to consume. Have you thought about using this course in product management or this course in customer service management or something as, as the AI can curate and make recommendations to me on what learning assets I should take on? And the list goes on all the way through the, the value chain. And the last part of humanizing that people forget is the offboarding process. We saw our good friend Elon there um, graduate 50% or so by, by estimates of, of his workforce population. What happened afterwards? Um, was there a use? Could there have been a use for an AI on helping uh, these people collectively navigate their post-employment environment? And actually what happened is they, they went to Twitter or they started self-organizing into groups in other forums because there, there didn't seem to be taught put into place as to what the post um, the graduate the post graduation experience was and that's a gr another great use for for AI because that's when people have high tension high stress and have a lot of questions the downside of using AI to automate decision making is that sometimes bias that creeps into training data can lead to biased decisions and so just in the Example that you gave, let's say we're using AI for upskilling and reskilling. Clearly, 
you know, if someone who looks like me or talks like me or comes from, you know, the background I come from or has my gender, et cetera, uh, is not traditionally promoted into certain roles, then automated decision-making is not going to suggest that I pursue those career paths and my career could be adversely impacted through no fault of my own. Uh, how do you think about the ethical components of using AI to make HR-related decisions? Uh, I think it can be done uh, if done carefully. Um, so I think where you're getting at, there, there's some elements that can be programmed. Like um, if we think about, people talk about DE&I, and I, collectively, I think the best description is together D plus E plus I equals belonging, right? And belonging has some components. Like the diversity is, do I see people like me who've had my life experience being successful in this work? Well, AI can surface or find people that look like me and connect me with people like me. Have you talked? Kevin, have you tried talking to Dan? He's somebody that has some of the same experiences as you and can be used to direct me to talk to certain people that I may have people who are like me with my life experience who are being successful. Um, or equity, or can people like me participate in activities that allow me to be successful? Again, um, algorithms can be used to expose, just like your LinkedIn recommendations, uh, to expose you to and recommend that you talk to other people. And in the uh, a few years ago, Facebook had a policy of of almost a chat roulette when new hires were bought on board. They were assigned randomly assigned or an algorithm assigned uh, in some cases. Uh, senior executives for them to talk with and went ahead and booked time in that senior executive calendar. So the algorithms can be used to detect people and, and book meetings with people that would benefit that employee. And, and the inclusion, am I, am I included in all the activities that matter around here? If you detect that people aren't showing up or aren't participating in company events or aren't attending or aren't RSVPing or aren't being invited even, we can order email traffic starts to go trend lower because they're not feeling included in the conversations, then algorithms can help detect this person is, is their volume of interaction or communications or engagements has gone down, they may be feeling less included. So we can use the algorithms for good. And I think we always need to watch this fear of never let the algorithm make a decision. Algorithms are excellent at making recommendations. And as long as there's a human that is taking the recommendation that based on the algorithm has a 95%, like a search, basis has a 95% probability or, or, or thereabouts of being a, a relevant recommendation, I can take it. But don't automate that. Still narrow down some recommendations, say, hey, here's three recommended candidates, and we've randomly included another one in here, but we're not telling you which one that is. The algorithm can, as long as it's recommended, but don't let the algorithm say, Based on everything, your singular best candidate is, and then that's where things go sour. That's where bias can creep in because it's all or nothing. It's win or lose. And that's the type of decision-making I don't want to see an algorithm make. 
Kevin, I got to get you off the hot seat, but uh, not before you answer one last question for me. Uh, polish your crystal ball. In 10 years, we're having a version of this conversation. Uh, what is one behavior in the workplace that's common that today we might look at and say, you know, it feels like science fiction? Well, today we're having this conversation on a voice platform. And I think in 10 years from now, your avatar and my avatar are in a digital uh, environment and we're, we're having the conversation there and we're surrounded by um, some screens or some other, other inputs that create a, just a much better meeting environment for us than this current two-dimensional um, uh, screen that we're looking at each other on or just the one-dimensional voice only. We'll, we'll get to see ourselves in 3D uh, volumetric um, representations of who we each choose to represent ourselves as. And I think that that's where we go into the uh, virtual world. Why will that be better than the you and I are on on camera. We're not. We're only going to publish the audio, but we're having a very nice human interaction here. Talk me through the attributes of the metaverse that will improve our ability to communicate. I think the the aspects are uh, we can show up a little bit. Uh, we have more degrees of freedom in how we show up. My avatar can I, I can choose to express myself differently. And, and more authentically, or not, sh should I wish to, but I have a lot more choices on how I, I express myself and how I present myself. And in some of the early um, meetings that I've had online, one of the consistent feedback elements I've heard is conversation among avatars has less bias appears to have less bias because just like when you meet a person you're meeting the avatar and you're exploring who are they and you have to listen and engage with that avatar to understand who's the person behind the avatar and the if there are biases there it's it's whatever that person wanted to show you and so i think it it lends for listening more to in these online worlds to people. And I, I think allowing people to communicate a little differently with uh, extra communication tools. Look, let me show you data. Let me show you pictures. There's just other ways of getting the message across in a, in a 3D environment like an online arena. Once they get, once they make the devices a bit more comfortable to wear. Um, and I, th I think that we can just bring more data to our meetings. We can bring more of ourselves to those meetings. There's more of a 3D representation versus this 2D TV screen that we, we talk on, or certainly the 1D voice call that we sometimes talk on. I'm optimistic about the metaverse, uh, the ability of it to reduce some of the boundaries that impact underrepresented employees whether it's age, race, gender, uh, all those sorts of things. I'm, I'm optimistic about the metaverse for those kinds of use cases. And certainly uh, to the points you're making, I'm, I'm curious and uh, look forward to the next version of this podcast that we're going to do together. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have to experiment with it in the metaverse.
Absolutely. In fact, if there's a book recommendation I can make on that, there's a great book called Burn In by P.W. Singer and August Cole. And it takes trends that exist today and brings them into a futuristic world that is actually avatar and VR uh, intensive. And, and if you're just looking for a, just a good journey through the possibilities of an avatar-centric world, it's it's a pretty good book for that. We will link to it in the show notes. Good suggestion. Hey, Kevin, before uh, we can let you go, where can our audience learn more about you and your work? You can learn about me on kevinmulcahy.com. And I just spend a lot of time curating assumptions among management teams on how do you plan for the future of work? Because all plans are based on assumptions and not all assumptions are uh, uh, are based on solid ground. And so we and that's that's how we we roll, right? We we get inputs, we make assumptions, and then we make our plans. And if we can challenge some of our assumptions, then we can make better, more sustainable plans. Thank you. Kevin, brilliant discussion. I uh, I look forward to having you back and have an opportunity to continue where we uh, where we're leaving off. That work for you? We'll meet you in the virtual world, Dan. Absolutely, look it works. Forward to it. Excellent. Well, uh, as always, I'm your host, Dan Turchin of AI and the Future of Work. We're uh, signing off for now, but of course, back next week with another fascinating guest. <laughs>